Hello everyone, my name is Andrew Neighbor. I am the Director of Student Ministry here at Fellowship Asheville and I'm genuinely excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, part of our goal at Fellowship Student Ministry is to prepare our students for a lifelong walk with Jesus. And before I was Director of FSM, I was a volunteer and I, it's been a lot of fun. It's been really encouraging for me uh, to see over the past five years, to see our students grow and grow up and, and grow in their faith. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, uh, make sure to hit that like button. That way we know you're here. One of the things uh, I love about my church, one of the things I love about Fellowship Asheville is that we are an intentional community. And unfortunately, being digital can make that a little bit more difficult at times. So if you're new, please give us a like. This morning, I want to start with a question. Have you ever felt tired? And I don't just mean like a little bit tired. I mean like exhausted, like you've reached your end. Have you just about had it with 2020? Because uh, I know like in certain ways, I, there have been moments this year where I certainly have. Uh, today, we are going to look at a character from the Bible who definitely was there. Um, today, we're going to be talking about Elijah. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about the moment that happens directly before we get to Elijah's down, because it, it's a real big high. Uh, we see in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah has challenged the prophets of Baal to uh, a, a fight, a god off, like whoever God's light, whoever's God lights the altar, like theirs is the one true God. And in this, we see um, we see Elijah's confidence in the Lord, because the prophets of Baal, they're over there, they're doing some ridiculous dances, they're, they're doing all sorts of things, and in that moment, uh, in 1 Kings 18.27, Elijah taunts them by saying this, cry aloud, for he's a god, either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Elijah is actively taunting and mocking them. And then he's like, sure, put water on, on my uh, uh, offering. Cover it in water, douse it, I don't care. My God is bigger than this. And so they have the competition. Elijah invites God not just to show up, but to show off. He does, calls down fire from heaven. The prophets of Baal are humiliated. Elijah and the Lord win. Elijah then kills all 400 of these prophets of Baal. And this is where we start our story. Because King Ahab tells his wife Jezebel what's happening. And then we see in 1 Kings verses 2 and 3 that, they, um, that this is what is said. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So uh, allow me to paraphrase. Jezebel says to Elijah, I swear to Asherah, I'm going to kill you. And so Elijah hears this, he is scared, and he runs away. Literally, like, he leaves the northern kingdom. He is in Judah. He is 
he leaves his servant in Beersheba, and then uh, let's continue the story in 1 Kings 19, 4 through 6. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was in his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Elijah had been on the run uh, from Mount Carmel, Jezreel, all the way down to Beersheba. I googled this because I wanted to see how big of a dif- uh, how long of a distance it was, and Google Maps says it's a 49-hour journey by foot and contains over 10,000 feet of elevation gain. So at this point, Elijah was wore out. He was tired. He was done. Um, and it was, you know, it wasn't like it was a nice day out either. This was like in the middle of the desert. It was brutal. So after hiking another day past Beersheba, Elijah had had enough. He was completely exhausted. And so he saw a, a broom tree, which is basically like a juniper tree. And it was, you know, maybe eight, 10 feet tall. And so he's like, that's it. That's where I'm going to sit down. And that's where he's like, God, I've had it. I am done. Just let me die already. And then he collapses. And then while he's there, while he's asleep, an angel of the Lord comes to him and just, just barely pokes him. And, and he wakes up and, and, and he's given food and water. Like, at this particular moment, when Elijah feels like he is alone and abandoned and he feels the furthest away from God, God is still there and still cares for him. You guys ever go on a hike where you are just completely and utterly exhausted and just, just done? Um, earlier this summer, my friend and I, we hiked up the boulevard trail up Mount LeConte. That was 16 miles. By the end of it, or more accurately, when we still had about five or six miles left to go, we were done. We were completely exhausted. Uh, Honestly, I feel like it's it's a miracle that we even were able to make it back to the car just because I remembered that day to, to have some ibuprofen in my bag. And, you know, it was three hours, I think, after sunset when we finally got back to the parking lot. And I was sore for, an, like, the whole week. It was, it was rough. That was when I felt just completely done. But the difference is, I was hiking for fun. Elijah was running for his life. I got to see this beautiful, gorgeous view at the top. Uh, Elijah wanted to die. Like, there, there is a, a stark difference here. Let's, uh, let's continue in 1 Kings 19, 7 through 8. And an angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in that strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, 
the Mount of God. Uh, Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. That's where Moses encountered God and received the Ten Commandments. Uh, one thing I want to look at here in this verse is where he says, the journey is too great for you. Have you ever been told that God will never give you more than you can handle? Y'all, today I want to tell you that that is a lie. Here, right, right here, we see that God is telling Elijah, the journey is too great for you. This, this is not something you can handle on your own. I, I think sometimes we get that idea that, that, oh, we won't be given more than we can handle. We, we, we got this. Just believe in yourself. I think sometimes that lie can tend to creep, can tend to tr- creep into the church from sort of misquoting uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13, right, where Paul says, we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. And that is true. We will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. But I want to be very clear that temptation and suffering are not the same thing. Does that make sense? Uh, The next thing that we see here is at no point in this process did God rush Elijah. As he was there, as he was sitting there taking a nap, eating some food, it wasn't just, all right, you had a nap and some food. All right, come on up. Let's, let's go. It was no. He let him nap. He let him sleep. He let him rest again and then gave him some food. And it was on the strength of that food that he made it the additional 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. God is good. Um, and this is, I want this to be a reminder that sometimes when we are upset and hangry and we don't know what to do, it's good just to take care of your physical needs. Like, now, I'm not saying, like, just taking a nap and eating food will cure clinical depression. That's not my point here. But I do want to say, don't make decisions when you're tired and hungry and exhausted. If you're feeling distant from God and people, reach out, connect, get outside. Uh, uh, After Elijah's strengthened here, he continues on towards Mount Sinai. And we see this in 1 Kings 19, 9 through 10. Here he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And I love the way God deals with Elijah here. He doesn't discipline him. He's not angry with him. He doesn't run away and leave Elijah to his own devices. No, he simply asks Elijah a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah gets to share how he's feeling and and his emotions and everything that's bottled up where he's just like, I am alone. Everyone who loves you is either turned away or got killed or, or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. There's, I am the only one left who serves you, and they want to kill me too. Can you hear the desperation in Elijah's voice? He is, he is at his wit's end. He is scared, alone, and he feels abandoned. Um, 
he, he thinks that, like, in this moment, he's, he's thinking, he alone has stayed true to what God wants. I am the only one who's done what you told me to do, and this is what I have to show for it. I am on the run for my life. Um, students, have you ever felt like this? Uh, I, I know when I was in middle school, I definitely felt this way, right? Like, I remember going to my middle school in sixth grade thinking, I am the only Christian here. I later realized that wasn't true at all, but to sixth grade me, I was like, I am, I am alone. I have to do what I can to survive. And y'all, middle school was not fun. It was not enjoyable. But I survived. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it's easy to, to, to be in that mindset where I'm the only one here and, and get sort of caught up in that. Here, Elijah feels like he's a failure. He's asking God, what's the point? What am I even doing? Like, sure, uh, you delivered an awesome victory when we defeated the prophets of Baal, but what did that actually get? I'm on the run. Uh, Jezebel still wants to kill me. Like, what's the point of all of this? And here is how God responds. And he said, Go and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So one thing that I think is really interesting here is the first thing that God tells Elijah to do is go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Go out and leave the cave and, and take a look. Elijah doesn't actually do this. He Here's, you know, the great big wind, a huge earthquake. By the way, I'm pretty sure it's like a much bigger earthquake than, oh no, my chair got knocked over. Like, I, th I think it was actually like a real earthquake, you know? And then a great big fire comes through and then all these things. And Elijah's still in the cave. But when he hears the still small voice of God, he recognizes that's God. That's when he goes. That's when he leaves the cave, puts his hoodie up over his head, and then walks out there. Um, this whole time, right, there's these large displays of power, and Elijah, Elijah knows that God's not in that. And then we continue. Elijah hears the still small voice, and they have this conversation. And behold... There came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek, to, they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, Abel-Meholah, 
you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, after hearing the still small voice, what happens? God asks Elijah the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And what do you think Elijah's thinking here? It's like, what? I, I just told you, like, what, what I'm doing here. And so Elijah repeats himself again. And I think it's interesting that this time, God answers him. God gives him instructions. He tells him what to do. It's, you know, anoint Hazel, new king of Syria. So go all the way up to Damascus, all the way in Syria, anoint a king, then come back, anoint a king of Israel, and then uh, anoint Elisha, your apprentice. And then, the, but don't, don't freak out. There's still 7,000 people who still love me. He tells Elijah, you are not alone. So throughout this whole process, throughout this whole journey, where Elijah runs for his life, runs away from Jezebel, uh, meets God in the wilderness, and then meets God again on Mount Sinai, we see that God is giving Elijah rest and restoration. We see that when Elijah was at his absolute weakest, God was with him. God gave him the food and strength and water that he needed to continue on. And when I say restoration here, I don't mean it in the, the church discipline or church restoration sense that we hear when like a Christian leader is asked to take an indefinite leave of absence because of their public sin. Like that's, that's not what this is. It's more so Elijah's cup was empty and God filled it back up again. Does that make sense? Um, I love that this story addresses the very real needs that Elijah had. Have you ever taken a psychology class either in high school or in college? If so, you might recognize this chart. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And here we see that God meets Elijah's needs in order so that he can listen and be prepared for what's next. Elijah was tired and exhausted and hungry and thirsty, and God met him there. God filled Elijah's physiological needs. And then uh, God led him to Mount Sinai, where Elijah was safe from Jezebel. He met his uh, needs for safety. And then we see uh, God remind Elijah that he is not alone, that he is loved. And so we see that throughout this, God is caring for and providing for Elijah. And um, all this, again, begins with a simple nap and a snack. Like, God is good and he cares about us. Now, I know it sounds like I'm oversimplifying, oversimplifying a little bit when I say it like that, but here's, let me explain what I mean. Uh, oftentimes, when I'm meeting with Fred, uh, and I'm like, well, things aren't, I'm not 100%. He'll ask me this question. He'll say, have you taken your meds today? And he's not referring to medication, but rather it's, it's an acronym. It's meditation, exercise, 
diet, and sleep? Am I taking care of myself? Because when, when, when those needs are met, that is when we can be in a position to make good decisions. And so throughout this process of, of rest and restoration, we see that God is shepherding Elijah. He is, he is leading him beside still waters. Uh, I, I do. I, th- I think of Psalm 23 when I, I hear this story, right? I think of Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3, where uh, David writes this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. A couple years ago, I read a book that completely changed the way I look at Psalm 23. That book is called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. Uh, It's by W. Philip Keller, and in it I learned three uh, very, very clear things. Number one, sheep are stubborn, helpless, and stupid. And y'all, I asked Fred if I was allowed to say stupid in big church, and he said I was. So sheep are stupid. Um, it, is, it is very clear throughout their behavior and, and through any interactions you have with sheep that they are not smart animals. Uh, they don't know a whole lot about self-preservation or seeing the world from any perspective other than, there's some grass, I'm going to eat it. It's about all the sheep have. Uh, number two, we're a lot like sheep. Like It is really incredible the parallels that exist between how a sheep lives its life and how we live our lives. And three, that God really and truly is an absolutely incredible shepherd towards us. He cares deeply for us. He reaches out and saves us. He restores our souls. And y'all, when I was reading this book, um, Philip Keller painted an incredible picture of what the restoration of a soul looks like for the shepherd to a sheep. Uh, He talks about cast sheep. Uh, A cast sheep is one that has laid down on its side, and oftentimes it'll either be pregnant or have an extremely heavy coat of wool, and so its center of balance, its center of gravity is a little bit off, and then it actually rolls onto its back and has its feet in the air. It can't, you know, it can't help itself. It's, it's just sitting there, feet just, just waving in the wind. And it's, it's a pretty pathetic sight. And, and it's kind of like a funny mental image and picture. But it is kind of serious. Because on a hot day, uh, if the sheep is sitting there on its back, those ga- uh, gases build up in the sheep's stomach. And if that sheep isn't rescued and set back upright, it can die in a matter of hours. So that is why the shepherd is always constantly counting his sheep, watching, because the off chance that not just it's like attacked by wolves or whatever, but that it just merely laid down and rolled on its side and is cast. To, to rescue a cast sheep, what the shepherd has to do is go over to the sheep, let, roll it onto its side, uh, straddle the sheep, pick it up, and then hold it there between its legs. And and then with this process, it then has to like rub its legs to to restore blood circulation. It's it's an intimate process. 
to restore the sheep to its right balance. And oftentimes, like the sheep will, will, won't really understand what's happening, and so it'll try and like struggle and run away, and then it might, like, it might get away, and then it takes a couple steps, uh, loses its balance, and falls over again. And then the shepherd has to walk back up to it, pick it up again, and start the process over again. And eventually, I think the sheep realizes what's sort of happening, calms down, says, hey, you're trying to help me. And then once the sheep has its balance again, the shepherd lets go. And then the sheep frolics back to the herd. It is then happy as a clam, doing what sheep do with the rest of the sheep. Rest and restoration lead to joy. Rest and restoration lead to joy. And when we think about this, I know when I think of joy, the Bible verse that comes to my mind is John 10.10, right? The, the, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But y'all, do do you know what John 10.11 says? I I think this is so cool. Here's what John 10.11 says. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The abundant life that Jesus is talking about is directly linked to our knowledge and understanding of the gospel. It is directly linked to our knowledge and understanding of Jesus as our good shepherd. That abundant life is not just you know, oh, Jesus wants you to be happy. That's, that's not what that means. That's not what that's saying. It's saying that Jesus is our shepherd. And when we understand who we are and who God is, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of our sin is death and that while we were in death, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once we realize that and know who God is and who we are, that is where joy comes from. And if you uh, haven't said yes to Jesus, if you haven't said yes to Jesus being your shepherd, to him being your good shepherd, I, I invite you this morning to do that. He is so good, y'all. It, it is when we understand all of that, that, that I think that is what opens, at least for me, that, that's what opens my eyes to, to just how incredible God is, how amazing, how powerful, how, how deep, how wide his love for us. And y'all, it's, he doesn't just love us, he also likes us. And that is such an incredible thing, that he is the good shepherd. He looks out for us. And he will, he will restore to us the joy of our salvation when we are downcast. When we say yes to Jesus, we are saying yes to rest, restoration, and joy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for being who you are, for loving us, for, for dying the death that we deserve and living the life that we couldn't. God, I, I pray that um, wherever we are, that we would, we would be comforted by that knowledge and, and that we would find our rest in you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm.